Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Facing Evil, a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV. This podcast contains subject matter, which may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Facing Evil. I'm Yvette Gentile. And I'm Rasha Pecorero. This week, we are talking about a truly shocking case, and that's the case of Shonda Scherer, who at the age of 12 was abducted, tortured, and killed by four teenage girls. Yeah, this is a case of teenage bullying gone completely off the deep end. And it's been the subject of at least two true crime books and a play featuring Chloe Savanier and many poems about this as well. And I think what fascinates everyone, or so it seems, is how this crime was perpetuated by teenage girls. I mean, Mean Girls is an understatement on this case. It's the original Mean Girls, right? Yeah. And so we're going to be getting into that today. And we're also going to be talking with our guest, who is a author and journalist. She is Aphrodite Jones, and she's written a book about this case. But first, our producer Trevor is going to take us through today's case. Jackie Vaught's daughter Shanda was kidnapped and murdered in 1992 by four teenage girls. Court testimony showed some of the girls had been abused by their parents. It turns into anger if you keep that hurt and don't let it go or don't forgive that person. That hurt can turn into anger and hate and um, make you do things that you would never really do. That evening there were four girls there that had a lot of hatred inside of them and it just all exploded. Shanda Scherer was a 12-year-old girl who was killed in 1992 by four other girls in Madison, Indiana. The year before, she and her family had just moved to the nearby town of New Albany, Indiana. That fall, she met a girl named Amanda Hevron. Soon, they began exchanging romantic letters, and in October, they went to a dance together. At the dance, they were confronted by another girl named Melinda Loveless. Loveless was older, 16. The previous spring, she and Amanda had been romantically involved, and although the relationship had fizzled out, they had never formally ended things. Seeing Amanda at the dance with someone else, Melinda got angry. 
Melinda had a difficult home life with a violent and sexually abusive father. She was close friends with 17-year-old Lori Tackett, who also had a difficult time at home and had dropped out of high school that year. Also in their orbit were two other girls named Hope Rippey and Tony Lawrence, who were both 15 years old. The night of January 10th, 1992, the four girls were hanging out, and Melinda Loveless told the girls that she was going to use a knife to scare Shanda, a girl they'd never met. She wanted to intimidate Shanda for dating her girlfriend. The girls drove to Shanda's house, where Tony Lawrence and Hope Rippey went to the door and told Shanda they were friends of Amanda's, and that Amanda wanted to meet her at a building known locally as the Witch's Castle, an abandoned stone house by the Ohio River. When she got in the car with them, Lawrence held a knife to Shanda's throat. The girls drove to Witch's Castle and dragged a sobbing Shanda inside. There, Melinda Loveless tied Shanda's hands as Rippy taunted her with the knife. The girls took her jewelry and a Mickey Mouse watch that she was wearing. Later, Melinda Loveless and Lori Tackett made Shanda strip down to her underwear. Then, the girls began assaulting her, punching her and taking turns stabbing her in the chest. Then they strangled her with a rope until she passed out, and then put her in the trunk. At one point, Shanda began screaming from the trunk, and so Lori Tackett went to go stab her again with a paring knife. Melinda Loveless reportedly laughed and bragged about the torture to her friends. And finally, the girls drove Shanda to a secluded area, where they poured gasoline on her and lit her on fire. Shanda's body was found by two hunters, and they alerted the police. The next day, Hope Rippey and Tony Lawrence went to the county sheriff's office and gave statements describing the night before. They put most of the blame on Melinda Loveless and Lori Tackett. All four girls went to trial and entered plea bargains to avoid the death penalty. Melinda and Lori were tried as adults and were both sentenced to 60 years in prison. However, they were released on parole in 2019 and 2018 respectively. Hope Rippey received a 35-year sentence and was released on parole in 2008. Tony Lawrence received 20 years and was released on parole in 2000. And so, what led to the murder of Shanda Scherer? And how could four teenage girls be driven to torture and kill another person so violently? Hello, everyone. We are so pleased to welcome our guests for today's case. Writer, journalist, and crime expert Aphrodite Jones is here with us today. She has written a book on the case of Shanda Scherer entitled Cruel Sacrifice. She's also written numerous other true crime books, including The FBI Killer and A Perfect Husband. Many of Aphrodite's books have been made into films and television shows, and she even produced her own show, True Crime with Aphrodite Jones, which ran for six seasons on Investigation Discovery. The list of amazing credentials goes on and on and on. So without further ado, Aphrodite, a como mai, or welcome to Facing Evil. Thank you. I've been used to facing evil my whole professional life. Oh, you and us both, Aphrodite. Whew. We got a lot to talk about. I'm not kidding when I say that. You know that, right? Yeah, we know. We know. <laughs> well, now that we know a little bit 
about you, Aphrodite. You know, of course, we want to talk today about Shanna, but we want to learn even more about you. So we fell into true crime because of our our lineage and its connection to our mom's story. How did you fall into true crime? Like, how did you first get interested in it? Like, what led you to this, you know, facing evil of your own? Well, it was, it was honestly a calling. It was a, For me, it was a fluke. I was living in Kentucky, Appalachia at the time. I was a professor wow. at a small yeah. college. And I also did a radio gig because I always was involved with media and broadcasting. So I was doing a radio gig as well. And an FBI agent killed his lover, informant, and became the first FBI agent in history and still to this day to cop a murder plea to manslaughter He led them to her bones. She was pregnant and threatening him. And mountain woman, in other words, hillbilly, right? Back then. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, okay, where's the news? The Time Magazine didn't have it. Newsweek had a blurb this big. And I just couldn't understand, like, where's CNN? Where is everybody? Why? This is a historic case. So I called my agent. I had an agent had already written a book about the entertainment business because that's the business I was in and wanted to be in. Same. <laughs> Understand. <laughs> about, like, let me talk to killers and monsters, you know, and people who've lost family members. That was not in the cards, I thought. Right. Anyway, I called the agent. He said, oh, you can't do anything about this. This is a big story. Ann Rule's going to be calling. I thought, who the hell is Ann Rule? At that time, that's how little I knew about it. Right. And he said, you don't read this I did a PhD in literature. I, no, there was no true crime on the list at NYU. So P.S. She, he said, well, read in cold blood. I did. And somehow thought at that time I could do this. And I wound up, you know, interviewing my family. It became a TV movie with Patricia Arquette, um, Stephen Weber. And uh, the book was incredibly successful. And then I hit on Cruel Sacrifice. Mm. And when that happened, I went to the New York Times list. I kind of got stuck with the genre. Right. In particular, writing Cruel Sacrifice, when I look back at it, and I did look back last night in preparation for this, (laughs) that was the hardest book probably that I ever wrote because of the subject matter. Of course. I really didn't want another write a true crime book after that. I really did not. I was so mentally drained, emotionally drained from the whole experience. You know, I was able to see the car that Shanda was in. I was taken to the evidence area where that car was in a lot. And they opened that trunk and dried blood was still there. And, uh, and you could smell it. Oh, and you could see areas where she tried to scratch her way through because those old cars in those days, you could get through the back seat through the speakers. And, and this poor girl was trying to do that. Right. You know, when they asked me, did I want to see the trunk? Wasn't expecting that. Then what happened was when I got to the Hope Rippey's sentencing hearing in South Bend, Indiana, a writer came up to me and said, I'm writing this book. And I said, well, good luck to you. Oh. I said, good luck to you. Oh, mm-hmm. You know, like I'm working with the family. I said, okay, uh, good luck to you. Yeah. I didn't know the name of the book at the time. I just knew that Jackie bought the mom was working with this writer. And in my mind, I had no choice, but also the story was really to talk to these girls. That was the story. Right. What happened in these children's lives? They're 15 and 16 years old. What could have happened in these girls' lives that could possibly have made them do this? And in particular, obviously, Melinda Loveless, because she was the ringleader. 
So I wrote to her. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. And Melinda answered and wanted me to come see her. And I have to say, back then, I've seen pictures of her recently where she was released. She was gorgeous in person. She's not photogenic. Her pictures do not do her justice. This girl was drop-dead gorgeous. I mean, she's 16, but she was absolutely stunning. And I could not believe I'm sitting there with this beautiful girl who's telling me, oh, it was... It was so sad. You know, she was just so nonchalant about it. I was just like, that's how it was back then. I'm like, back then? You're 16. When was back then? When you were six? Ooh, you wow, know, wow. It was so weird. Wow. Um, but she wanted, she wanted me to tell the story. And she connected me with her mom, who I worked with, you know, for quite a while. And obviously then the police and the evidence and all the rest of the interviews that came in. It was, it was tough. I can only imagine, Aphrodite, like, you know, I'm just sitting here listening to everything that you're saying and taking it in. And, you know, this crime was so incredibly brutal, you know, and when we think about it, it it was in 1992, like Rasha and I were both in Hawaii, so I hadn't heard of it at all. But the fact that these girls, right, were so young and we've all been through mean girls, teenage bullying, but the extremeness, the torture in which you were just talking about, right, Melinda, like what they did to Shanda, how do we comprehend that? You know, from you writing your book and interviewing, like, how did you? So first and foremost, I realized that Melinda, who was the ringleader, was the only person who wanted to have this done. Hmm. So it had to be her backstory. I knew there's something in her background that's horrific, which there was and is. Apart from that, and her mother admitted to me that she was a masochist. And I mean, just, she, you know, the mother was raped by various people. The father raped the mother in front of the girls. There was a lot of sleeping with the girls, pistol whipping, I don't, you know, craziness in that household that I later discovered. But also the thing that struck me was Lori Tackett was out for blood. She was a ticking time bomb. Mm-hmm. So when Melinda Loveless connected with Lori Tackett, she found the person she needed. Ah. Tony Lawrence and Hope Rippey were just in the car for the ride down from Madison to New Albany. That's a pretty long ride. Right. Now, it's not a 15 minute you know, drive away. It's an hour plus to almost. It's quite a bit of a distance. So, you know, those girls went along for a ride. They don't even know what they're getting into until they got to Melinda's house, who they'd never met in their lives. And Melinda says, I just, she pulls out that knife. I'm going to scare Shanda. They don't even know who Shanda is. They don't, none of them have met Shanda. First and foremost, I've got to say to answer your question, Yvette, this has to do with, partially with peer pressure because the other two girls that didn't have really either a dog in this fight or a bloodlust How did they wind up participating? And that's an interesting dynamic here because we see how people, I don't know, drop like lemmings, especially when they're teenagers. Mm -hmm. The other thing with teenagers, as we all know, everything is the end of the world. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. There's no tomorrow here. Yeah. Everything is the end of the world. And it's all, you met somebody two seconds ago and your best friends. I love her. Hello, we're yeah, great. Yeah, we just yeah. met yesterday, but this is like, she's so great. And so you have all these weird mixture of elements 
that, you know, you, you could say bullying. I mean, Shanda was bullied in the, in the school, right? Melinda was after her. But this goes beyond any kind of bullying. I mean, let's face it. This is one of the worst crimes in the history of teenagers. It really, truly is. started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is he breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I have so much respect for you that you can go in as, you know, basically as a journalist with open eyes and not look at Melinda or any of these other young girls, because they were young girls that did this horrific, unthinkable thing. But again, I I don't want to give them a free pass because of their history and their home life. But that had to affect what they did to Shanda, right? Like you said, it wasn't just bullying. Like this was something deeper, something horrific had been done to these young girls. Well, so Melinda, we believe, was sleeping with her father. We know they slept in the same bed. She never admitted that he actually uh, uh, you know, had sex with her. But he, we know he had sex with the other two daughters and the mother had sex. He raped the mother in front of the three girls. All that went on. Um, also, there was uh, allegations that he, he had molested her cousins. So out of all the females in that household, she's the only one who didn't admit to that. When her parents got a divorce and Larry Loveless left the house, 
Melinda now felt like she's deserted by the only man that she cares about. Clearly, she's in love with her father. And Mm -hmm. yes, I'm sure she was, uh, you know, being molested, thinking that this was okay in this incestuous relationship because kids don't know what to think, especially if they've been groomed from a young age. This didn't happen when she turned 16. This is going on from the time she's a little girl and with her older sisters. Now, I found out from the older sisters who I spoke with. So when, you, when you're in that scenario and you're your only person in the world who you trust, who you think um, is your protector and your, your love of your life leaves, now, obviously, she doesn't trust men. So that's why she's with a girl. She's with Amanda Heverin. And now Amanda Heverin, who she'd been holding on to for dear life, right, mm-hmm. as her person in the world, um who had, you know, more of a butch look, if you want to use that word, you know, the backwards baseball hat, the very short hair, the whole opposite of Melinda with the long flowy locks. And so it was a male figure in her life as well. Um, And now that person is leaving her for some little girl, whoever that little girl is. In Melinda's mind, it's not a little girl. It's a competition. They didn't separate themselves from whether they're 15 or 12. Yeah. And that's interesting because, you know, you think of, oh, that's the way it is today. All these kids are confused and they mix it up and that. No, this has been going on from the beginning of time. Right. We were having this conversation um, about another case. And if you think about everything that you just said about what Melinda had gone through as a child, and if you treat someone like a dog, they're going to behave like a dog. Melinda, she didn't know what love is, but she believed that she loved Amanda. And now Amanda is leaving her as well. And that's another thing. People redirect anger, right? So rather than putting the anger toward her mother, who allowed all of this and who admitted to me that she was a masochist and allowed herself to be raped in front of these girls, et cetera, et cetera, and have swinging partners and other people brought into the house and the girls hearing all of it, knowing the house is small. So Melinda is thinking that the world is upside down for her. It doesn't make any sense to her. She needs some kind of validation. And that's what she got from Amanda Heverin. So now her validation goes away. Now her she doesn't know what to do with life. And again, you know, with teenagers, it's the end of the world. For her, it was the end of the world. She had to eliminate this competition at whatever cost. She didn't care. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. You know, you look at the letters she wrote and one of them, which was read in the court, said, I want Shanda dead. It was very specific. Wow. (sighs) It's not like it was an afterthought for her. This was premeditated, cold-blooded kill. That's what this was. Yeah. This was not, they lured Shanda from her house. Melinda was hiding in the backseat of the car under a blanket and then once Shanna got in that car, Melinda jumps out the, the knife to her throat, pulling her back from the back, you know, from the front seat. And she had told the other girls that she just wanted to scare Shanda. Lori Tackett, I'm sure, knew more than that. The other two girls who were along for the ride did not. They really had no idea what they were getting into. Mm-hmm. Those two girls would never have done this. I, I'm convinced of that. Had they not been in that car, had they not been kind of prodded along the way. And you have to think about two and not making any excuses for them because we know Hope Rippy poured the gasoline on Shanda. Part of the reason there was so much torture, I think, is that these girls really didn't know 
how to kill someone. Hmm. They thought that they had killed her after they stabbed her a few times and pulled the, the rope around her neck, thinking that they strangled her. And next thing you know, she's banging in the back of the car. But now you have two other girls in the back seat hearing Shanda. What are they thinking? Am I going to be next? Like, look what they just did to this little girl we don't know. Melinda, they never met before. She's holding a knife to Shanda's neck and threatening at that witch's castle that she's going to put her in with a bag of bones, with the other bones. And the girls at that point all chimed in because that was just kind of having fun. You know, it was a game to them in the beginning. They drummed this whole thing up and they scared her. This is just a whole nother level of cruelty. And when I think about, like for me, thinking about this case, and it's pro- it may be different for you because you were, you know, right in the mix of it, you know, interviewing and you wrote a book about it. But do you think that these girls should have been tried as adults? Absolutely. I met with one of their lawyers and I'll never forget. He said to me, this is a minefield out there. Every time you get another teen who's coming to you for whatever reason that, you know, violation, crime they've committed, act of violence, they're just waiting to blow up. Now, this was 30 years ago. It's funny that right now we say that about now, right? We see school mm-hmm. shootings. Mm-hmm. Those didn't even exist back then in 1992 when this book in 93 was being written and came out. There was no schoolhouse shootings yet. There was nothing. So when this lawyer said to me, I face a minefield out there. Every time, you know, he represented juveniles. Every time another juvenile came to him for defense, he would see what was behind their mask and and the vulnerability and sadness and just lack of ability to cope with life. Yeah, yeah. That does not mean that you can go and take someone else's life and give you any excuses. No, mm-hmm. absolutely not. There's no getting around that what these girls did, and they all participated. And the way that Tony Lawrence, who eventually turned on the girls and was the chief in getting these guilty pleas, Tony Lawrence and Hope Rippy, they went to her house, right? Yeah. And they were there for two, three hours while Melinda and Lori went country driving. So once they left the house and here's Hope and Tony, very safe. Why are they not calling the police? I mean, I can understand you're scared because you're for your own life. Okay. But how about Shanda? How about what's going on right now? You don't tell your parents, oh my God, this girls are crazy. There's a girl in the trunk. You don't say anything. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You just sit there and, and read rune stones and be in a magical, bizarre world, it's incomprehensible to me. Even Amanda, they had told her, right, to look in the trunk, and she still didn't call the family. That's after the fact. Hope Ruby and Tony Lawrence had the ability to save save Shanda's life. When Amanda was shown that trunk, it was all over. All was all done, yes. That was later. No, no, no. Tony Lawrence and Hope Rippey, and Tony got away with really murder in the sense that she only did 10 years out of 20. Mm. They could have stopped this. Yeah. And there were other opportunities. They had stopped at gas stations. They were at a um, punk rock thing in Louisville for a few hours, waiting to go back to retrieve Shanda. There were numerous times they got lost driving around where they had the opportunity to stop it 
or to get out of it. Yeah. Even though they didn't live down there, I understand you're not supposed to have driven two and three hours away, that you're 16 and 15 years old. You don't want to get in trouble with your parents and this and that. But once they got back to Madison, Indiana, they're safe and they're in Tony's house. So why would Tony Lawrence go along with knowing that Lori and Melinda are going to kill her? started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Are you ready to fight back against crime? Hi, guys. Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies, personally investigating, prosecuting, and covering literally thousands of cases. It's so easy to think it will never happen to me or my family, but that is simply not true. Every day on Crime Stories with Nancy Grace, we shine a light on unsolved homicides, heat up cold cases, and help find missing people, especially children. We speak with family members, investigators, CSI, reporters, and experts in every field. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Let's talk about their sentencing. Tell us how you felt about the sentencing that the girls got. I think that even though Hope Rippey went along for the ride and didn't know what she was getting into, Hope allowed this to happen. And when Hope participated with Lori Tackett, taking that two liter bottle of soda, dumping it out on the ground of a gas station, a Circle K, and filling that with gasoline. That's not, maybe, I don't know, maybe this, no, that's deliberate knowing you are going to kill someone. Now, they may have thought she was already dead. Who knows? It doesn't matter. At what point does it become your fault? That's when it became Hope Rippey's fault. Because not only did she fill that two liter bottle with gasoline, but then she followed through when they got Shanda and put her in that field, pouring that gasoline all over the child and letting Lori light the match. You know that Shanda died of smoke inhalation. 
Yeah, because she she fought mm. like she fought. I mean, she fought. She was alive when they wrapped her in a blanket and put her in that field. And then not only that, Melinda, who is absolutely a savage, she realized I don't think she's burned enough and had them turn back around and light it again. Wow. And one of the things that that happened to me when I was researching this book is I spent a lot of time in courtrooms. I spent a lot of time in evidence rooms, et cetera. And a court clerk came to me and she said, okay, you want to see this video? I said, yeah. She goes, do you want me to sit with you while you watch it? Wow. I said, no, that's okay. That's okay. It was the video of the hunters who found Shanda. And as I'm looking at this thing and realizing she did look like a mannequin that was burned and the closer in they got, I mean, the pictures I show in the book are not anywhere near how horrific this image really was. I mean, her face was, I don't know how, how to explain this in politically correct terms, but it was black as coal. It was like the color of my hair, but all bubbled up and, you know, just horrifying. Unfortunately, I can never get that image out of my head. Yeah, you can never unsee that. I don't even like to revisit this story, honestly. I can only imagine. I can completely understand why. Yeah. You know, and then I think about how Jackie Vaught eventually forgave Melinda Loveless. (laughs) That is stunning to me. I presume Jackie Vaught did that for her own sanity. Mm -hmm. Did it long before Melinda was released. And Linda was only released in 2019. This forgiveness and helping Linda by giving her a dog called Angel so she could train these dogs to help disabled people and children that had mental issues, whatever it was. I, I'm sorry. No. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. We talk about that, you know, a lot in Facing Evil. And we always end, you know, with Animua. And Jackie is is an Emua herself, because like you just said, to be able to forgive someone who brutally tortured your daughter is, I I can't comprehend it, but we've seen it many times before, you know, with Judy Shepard, who was Matthew Shepard's mom. Right. You know, there's, I guess I could never speak for them, but there has to be some type of closure for them. I have encouraged victims' mothers, okay, try to forgive so that they're not suffering because the longer they suffer throughout the rest of their lives, the more this person who did this has hold over you. Right. Yeah. So you're continually re-victimized by what this person did. And it's just a, a record that's going in your head all the time. So I think what Jackie Bot did there, because Melinda was using training dogs to help other people, this was the idea in her mind. She was able to finally go there. But, you know, Steve Scherer, her father, drank himself to death and died at 52 years old. I mean, think about that. The guilt that this man felt for allowing his daughter to go to the front door, not once, but twice. But he knew those girls didn't know his daughter because they asked, is Shanda here when Shanda opened the door? And he heard it. And he questioned her and he says, who are these people? He realizes they don't know his daughter. Now, I have to believe, and I I mean, my heart breaks for Steve Scherer, that he could never forgive himself for that. But at the end of the day, of course, yes, you know, we can all, you know, look back and be like, you know, Steve should have done this. The four girls should have done that. I mean, all these things. 
But really, at the end of the day, sadly, it was those four girls that ended Shanda's life, of course. But I think, again, and we always, you know, we do this on on Facing Evil, like, we have to look for that light in the dark, right? Like you said, like that stunning gem of a human that Jackie had to be to forgive Melinda, to forgive her ex Steve to move onward and upward. And that's what Imua means to move onward and upward. Like we have to, whew, like, and we always want to fo- focus on the victim, but it's so hard. We didn't know much about Shanda. She was only 12. <laughs> well, and, and that's, you know, I mean, that's the other thing here too, is when you talk about facing evil, if you don't face it in, in a way that you can get past it, mm-hmm. then for example, Melinda was dealing with evil in her household all her life, right? Yes. And the evil that transpired there, she now projected onto someone else. So whether it eats your soul, whether it makes you become um, angry and and somebody who's going to lash out and do horrible things to other people because you've been abused, now you're going to abuse your kids or whatever, and that chain of violence and that chain of abuse that goes on, Somebody's got to stop and say, I can face this. I can get past this. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Just going back to Shanda's mom, right, Jackie, because, you know, we're talking about her father and we know that they were divorced, you know, and living in separate households. But the thing about Shanda's mom is she did everything right. Talking about a sacrificial lamb. I mean, Shanda Mm. had no idea what she was dabbling in there, right? Right. No idea. And Amanda Heaven swears up and down that it was Shanda who went to her, that Shanda went after her, that Shanda had been dating boys, that Shanda was sexually active. I'm not saying she, she certainly could have been sexually active at 12 years old. I don't know why she's going from boys to girls at 12 years old. I don't know that 12-year-olds necessarily are sexually with it, right? You know, there's a whole other element of stuff here. Like, what is happening here? Yeah, so much to unpack. Yeah, so so much to unpack. Yeah. <laughs> Before we wrap things up, Aphrodite, I would love to ask you, just because of everything you've so brilliantly shared with us today, how do you decompress? Like, how are you going to walk out of this interview after this and, and go on with your life with things, you know, you can't unsee certain things or think in your head? There are a couple of things I'm going to say about this. When I wrote this book, I was a drinker and I did this book throughout the night, writing till two or three o'clock in the morning. I wrote it very quickly and in a frenzy. After that, I had to give up drinking because I was drinking so much that this book had consumed me. And I don't, I don't drink. I haven't drank in 30 years. So congratulations. Thanks. But talk about a mind bender, you know, this story in particular, I didn't know how I was going to get past it. And and even to write it, what I had to do to get through it, it was so, so hard for me. Um, but at the same time, I knew this story had to be told because we had to look at mm-hmm. what was going on with teenagers because it wasn't just mm-hmm. the poor girls. And yes, they've done the most horrible thing of any teen I could think of, but all these other teenagers, the minefield, were still out there and nobody was really paying attention to it back then. It was like, 
I don't know. Everybody's good. We're all and no, the, they weren't good. Mm-mm. Yeah. And I think the idea of parents paying more attention, of parents and not not trying to blame the parents, but just getting the lesson about this. And it wasn't just not just Shanda's parents. What about all the other parents? Mm-hmm. And I promised myself one thing: that when I was not writing, and I would never write on a weekend again, which that book I wrote, Morning, Noon, Night, Weekends, I decided I'm never writing past five o'clock at night anymore, ever. I am never writing on a weekend. And um, I I am going to shut myself off. I'm going to have two lives. Uh, I'm going to have two lives. In which I'm dealing with this horror and all the monsters I've dealt with since, the killers that I'm on the phones with that you can't, I can't imagine. I'm writing a new book now. But when I finish the chapters and when my day ends, I go off into Judge Judy land. <laughs> I go off voting or whatever concert. I am not there anymore. You know, I can't be. Good. Yeah. Thank you, Aphrodite. Guys, so nice to talk with you both. Today's message of hope and healing goes out to someone whose life was turned into a living nightmare in January 1992. And that was Jackie Vaught, Shanda's mother. Shanda was, by all accounts, a well-adjusted girl who just got involved with the wrong people. For many years, Jackie Vaught, quite understandably, didn't want anything to do with her daughter's killers. Then in 2012, she saw a videotape of Melinda Loveless behind bars training service dogs. And she says she saw something new in her eyes. Compassion. And then Jackie Vaught did the unthinkable. She donated a puppy to the prison service animal training program in her deceased daughter's name. And she even let Melinda train her. The puppy's name was Angel and she changed things for Melinda. Melinda had been on a path of growth for years and was remorseful now of her crime. Melinda said of Jackie, she helped me to heal and grow. She did a good thing, and I couldn't thank her enough. And I'm doing it for Shanda. Jackie Vaught still has no plans to meet her daughter's murderers. But this small act of reaching out was an unbelievable act of compassion. A bright spark in the dark. And so, Jackie Vaught, today we honor you. Onward and upward, Imua. Imua. Well, that is our show for today. We'd love to hear what you thought about today's discussion and if there is a case that you'd like us to cover. Find us on social media at Facing Evil Pod or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. And one request, if you haven't already, please find us on iTunes and give us a good review and a good rating if you like what we do. Your support is always cherished. Until next time. Aloha. Facing Evil is a production of iHeartRadio and Tenderfoot TV. The show is hosted by Rasha Pecorero and Yvette Gentile. Matt Frederick and Alex Williams are executive producers on behalf of iHeartRadio, with producers Trevor Young and Jesse Funk. Donald Albright and Payne Lindsay are executive producers on behalf of Tenderfoot TV, 
alongside producer Tracy Kaplan. Our researcher is Carolyn Talmadge. Original music by Makeup and Vanity Set. Find us on social media or email us at facingevilpod at tenderfoot.tv. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio or Tenderfoot TV, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hi guys, Nancy Grace here, host of podcast Crime Stories with Nancy Grace. I've dedicated my life to fighting crime and helping crime victims. For a decade, I prosecuted violent felonies. Every day is a mission. Every day is a chance to stop crime and keep one more person safe. Listen to Crime Stories with Nancy Grace on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. I'm Scott Weinberger, journalist and former deputy sheriff. In my new podcast series, Cold-Blooded, I'm embedded in the cold case investigation into the death of firefighter Billy Halper. Experience this investigation in a truly unique way, untangling secrets that may reveal the answers to not only one case, but almost a dozen. Listen to Cold-Blooded, The Apollo Jim Murders on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.